This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, we'll be studying Deuteronomy chapter 8 today. So in your church Bibles, that's page 152 and 53. Uh, you can turn there now. Um, on the first Sunday of Lent, we always read the gospel is Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. Um, and today we're going to study another passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 8, that is about a significant season, a wilderness season for the people of God, a season of testing, and, and we'll study that together. But first, a story. Now, the, uh, the years when I can tell stories of my children with impunity are, are fastly declining and will soon be no more. So my thought is, make hay while the sun shines. So this one's about Simon when he was four. We were noticing that the older children were getting a little bit demanding when they wanted something. Instead of asking, they would just say what they wanted in kind of a commanding, imperative tone. And so we, we decided, okay, we're going, to, we're going to set a habit. We're going to work on a habit all as a family for a period of time. And the habit will be, when you want something, make it a question and say please. So that was the habit. We were working on it. Well, in that period of time, I came into the room one morning as Simon was sitting on the ground with the, with the jammies all around him in, in a flop, and he, he looked at me and said, I tried to fold them, but it didn't work. Fold my jammies. And I thought to myself, how quickly one forgets. And I said to him, now, Simon, what's the habit that we're working on right now? He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Please, Papa, would you please fold my jammies and put them in the drawer, please? I said, thank you, Simon, that's much better. So I picked up the jammies, I started to fold them, and as he's turning to go out to breakfast and walks out the door behind him, he shouts, and don't forget to put them in the drawer. <laughs> How quickly one forgets. And that's not just four-year-olds. That's you, that's me, that's the people of God. That's fallen human nature. In the whole of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, we see the words, do not forget, or the call to remembrance a total of five times in this chapter. It's a prominent theme. If you look at verse 11, which is the central verse of this chapter, Moses is saying, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Take care lest you forget. It's a call to remembrance. Now, the context of this chapter, and indeed the whole book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are on the edge of the Jordan River, which means the promised land is just on the other side. The wilderness and the 40 years of wandering are behind them. And here they are at the edge of the promised land, and Moses is giving them the law. He's giving it to them a second time. Why a second time? Well, again, if you look at verse 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping the commandments and the rules and the statutes which I command you today. And the significance of the today is to remind that generation there was another day, about 40 years prior, when the law was first given. So Deuteronomy, the name simply translated means the second law or second giving of the law. Why did Moses have to give the law again? Well, because that first generation out of Egypt failed in their disobedience and in their forgetfulness. So if you go back 40 years before this on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain. He comes down. He teaches the law. He gives the law to all Israel. And then after that, he says, now I'm going back up the mountain. Wait till I come back. Moses goes up the mountain, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And by the end of 40 days... 
The people down in the wilderness have already given up. They've caved in and they've said, where is this Moses fellow? Come, let's make a golden calf and say, this is our God that led us out of Egypt. After 40 days. And this was after only a few months prior, signs and wonders and a display of God's power that the world had never seen before or ever since against the most powerful of the nation on the earth. And even the giving of the law 40 days prior was with smoke and fire and a thunderstorm and a trumpet blast of God from the heavens. And it only took them 40 days from those amazing events to forget. And when Moses came down the mountain, they weren't just like, you know, gossiping or some minor infraction. They were worshiping an idol. That was the number one thing not to do. And they were doing the number one thing not to do. How quickly we forget. After the debacle at Sinai, oh, let me say this, because this is important too. Uh, the significance of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness of being tempted. Yes, the 40 in part represents the 40 years in the wilderness, but the 40 days also matches that 40 days when the Israelites went from saying, we will do all that you command us to doing the number one thing they were not supposed to do. It only took them 40 days. And so Jesus in his 40 days, is showing that at the end of 40 days, when he is tempted, he resists temptation. He's faithful. And where everyone before him had fallen, he will prove faithful, and he will succeed where all others have failed. So that's the significance of Jesus's 40 days, and that he is faithful at the end. Now, after the debacle at Sinai, the people of Israel, they finally approach the promised land. This is now only a few months later. But here at the edge of the promised land, the first time, they again forget the covenant. They forget the promises of God. You see, about over 400 years before this, God had made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, saying to them, I promise that this land, this very land, I will give to you and your descendants forever. That was the promise. That was the covenant. And now, 400 years later, after bringing them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, with signs and wonders and an outstretched hand, he brought them out to do one thing, bring them into the land and fulfill the promise that he had made, that covenant that had been so much a part of their identity as a people and their understanding, the thing that should have been forefront on their mind, but what happens when they come to the edge of the promised land the first time? They either forget the promise or they don't believe it. They either forget the power that they've seen or they don't trust it anymore. And so they come to the edge of the land and they say, there's giants in the land and we can't. And God was displeased with that unbelief and the disobedience. And it was that disobedience, that particular forgetfulness amidst all the other forgetfulnesses it was that particular one that he said, because of this, you will wander in the desert for 40 years. When I was a kid and I would read the story of the Israelites in the desert, I just assumed, well, they didn't have cars, so yeah, it probably took 40 years to walk on foot from Egypt to Israel. Now I realized it would probably take a matter of a few months. So why were they there for 40 years? That was not the original plan. <laughs> Originally, they were just going to go up in a matter of a few months, be in the land. But because of this forgetfulness and the failure to obey and believe and trust God's promises, God said, okay, we need to do 40 years. And in this time, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to instill something in you 
that you'll never forget as a people. And so here we are now, 40 years after that, on the edge of the promised land once again. And Moses wants this generation to know, yes, the wilderness is behind you. You're about to enter the promised land, and the wilderness will be behind you for good. But there is a lesson that you learned in the wilderness. There was a purpose to those 40 years. And while you leave the wilderness behind, I do not want you to leave the lesson of the wilderness behind. I want you to take the lesson that you learned. I want you to take that lesson with you into the land of plenty. So we're going to talk about, one, the lesson of the wilderness, and two, we're going to hear the warning as we enter the land of plenty, and that's the summary of chapter 8 here. So what is the lesson from the wilderness? Why did Israel need the wilderness? Why do we also need wilderness experiences? What does it teach us, and what do we learn there? Here's the lesson of the wilderness. He is all. God is everything. He is our life. Everything we have comes from Him. Apart from Him, we have no good thing. We cannot live. We do not exist apart from Him. Nor can we be faithful and obedient apart from His own strength and power enabling us to be faithful. As Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was crucified, he told them, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, apart from me, you won't be able to do very much. Apart from me, you can only do a little. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It is this lesson that Israel learned in the wilderness. In a word, it is the lesson of humility. Look again at verses 2 and 3. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was the lesson even of the manna, because the manna fell down every day. How? By the command of God. Every day God commanded the manna anew, and it fell, and the people ate, and they, they lived in the desert where there would have been no other way for them to live. But why did the manna fall? Because God commanded it so. And so even the bread that they were eating was literally the command from God's mouth. And that's why he's saying, even more than the bread you eat, you live by the word and everything that comes from my mouth, my word and my breath. That is your life. In verse 3, that statement, that you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That is a statement of utter dependence. And that is the lesson of the wilderness. So when you find yourself in a wilderness place, it is the same lesson that God wants to teach you. 
And some of you are in a wilderness place because of the pressure that you're under, the stress, and the fact that you feel like you don't have, you, don't, you look around and you don't see what you feel that you need to make it through. And that's a wilderness experience, and you're in the wilderness. For others of you, life is okay, maybe even pretty good right now. But like Jesus, you're being led into the wilderness through the fasts of Lent. And these fasts and the purpose of these fasts, they're they're not cute. It's not like, let's just give up chocolate. The purpose of the fasts of Lent is to bring us to that same place of frailty and weakness. When you go for a meal or two without eating and already you begin to be hungry and cranky and you get headaches and you realize, wow, I'm actually frail. I'm actually a creature that needs to be sustained by food. I forget that most of the time when my belly is full, but now I see it, I feel it, I realize it. How God sustains me and how quickly it takes. It doesn't take very long for me to get to a place of weakness and frailty, even physically, which tells us something spiritually as well. So the Lenten fasts, even if you're not in a, in a difficult place from external circumstances, the purpose of the Lenten fast is like Jesus to bring you into that wilderness place where you can bump up against your human frailty, feel your hunger, and know your need of God. So either way, whether it's through external circumstances or the Lenten fasts, the purpose is the same, to teach us humility. Now, when we talk about humility, typically we think about being humble before others, um, but actually there are two types of humility, and the first one is humility before God, which properly is called poverty of spirit or being poor in spirit. This means before God, I have nothing to call my own, nothing that I can claim as coming from me. Before God, I have nothing. And true humility rejoices in our smallness. It's not a belittling of ourselves. It's simply a recognizing, I am small, but God is big. And I rejoice in my smallness, and I rejoice in His bigness, and that is poverty of spirit. That's humility before God. Humility before others properly can be called meekness. Meekness is the ability to count others greater than yourself, to rejoice in the fortunes and the successes of others without being jealous, to esteem others whether or not they esteem you in return. And undoubtedly, the first type of humility, the humility before God, is the more important And it leads to the second. When we are humble before God in that utter dependence way, knowing our smallness, confident of His bigness, that actually frees us up then to be humble and meek before others. So it's that first humility that leads to the second. The humility before God that says, He is all. That is the lesson of the wilderness. To know once again, as if for the first time, yes, He is all. He is everything. My maker and my savior, the one who cares for me and gives me what I need, the one who leads me and guides me wherever I go, the one who forgives me when I go astray and brings me back to the path because he loves me. He loves me, and his love is enough. He is enough. He is all that is humility. 
And as we prayed together in Psalm 25 a moment ago, the reward of humility is that we get to be led by God. Psalm 25, he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. (laughs) Do you ever feel at a loss? This decision, that decision, what do I do? Lead me. I feel like I have no one to lead me. You have someone. And the way to cultivate and, and to be led by God and to know and to feel his leading is to come into that place of humility and utter dependence and trust. This is the lesson of the wilderness because in the wilderness you have no other choice but, depend on, but to depend on God. You have nothing else to turn to. And again, this is part of the beauty of the Lenten fast, that whether it's food fast or whether you're fasting from media, whether it's, oh, normally I would go to the snacking cupboard right now, and I guess I can't do that. Or normally I'd flip on Netflix or I'd watch the show or do this, but I'm, I'm not doing it. You have nowhere else to turn. You say, well, I might as well pray. I might as well get out the Bible and spend time with the Lord because there's nothing else for me. I've cut it all out of my life. And now I'm brought because there's nothing else in this wilderness, free of distraction. Oh, what a gift. There's nothing else. I'll turn to God. And we do that maybe reluctantly at first. I know, I know. And then eventually we realize, oh, this is sweet. This is better than Netflix. This is better than even a cookie at 8.30 at night or 5. So the wilderness has a way of helping us remember that lesson of humility and utter dependence. The wilderness helps us remember that in a way that the land of plenty does not and cannot, which is why the second part of this chapter brings us a warning. Success can lead to pride and forgetfulness. Pride is simply, "I, I don't need you, God. And even the good things that are good gifts from God, even good things can be the cause of our undoing if we forget the lesson of the wilderness and our humility and who is our source and our life. Well, let's listen first to the list of the good things that God is promising to give. So look again now at verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity and in which you will lack nothing, whose stones are iron and you'll dig copper out of the hills. Here you shall eat and be full and you'll bless the Lord your God for all the good that he's done to you, for the good land that he's giving to you. Keep in mind that the people who are hearing that list have eaten nothing but bread for 40 years. Pomegranates, grapes, figs, honey. That sounds pretty good when all you've had is bread for 40 years. Uh, It's like how you are at the end of Lent when you're really ready to enjoy the things you've given up. Just imagine after 40 days, just imagine after 40 years so I told a story about Simon. This one's about Caroline. It was a couple years ago on Easter Sunday morning, and it, Julie was arousing the kids for the 6 a.m. service, and in the wee hours of the morning, she was gently shaking Caroline and said, Good morning, honey, sweetie, wake up. It's, it's Easter Sunday. Got to go to church. Jesus is risen. 
And Caroline is slowly opening her eyes, and then she says, we can have ice cream today. <laughs> so you can believe at the end of 40 years, they were ready for figs and pomegranates. They were ready for the good things of the land that were coming. But Moses follows the list of the good things with this warning. Now, now turn to verse 11. Let's keep going here. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest you forget the lesson of the wilderness. You're going into the good land, but take with you the lesson that you learned in the wilderness. Do not forget the Lord your God. How do we forget when we fail to keep his commands, his rules, and the statutes, which I commend you today? Lest, verse 12, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks are multiplying and the silver and the gold and all your wealth is multiplying, when you've come into plenty, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, who brought you out of Egypt. And then goes on and he lists again the wilderness, the scorpions, the snakes, the land with no water, how I fed you with bread to humble and test you, but I provided for you, I led you. In verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Instead, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So what Moses is saying, what was true in the wilderness is still true in the land of plenty. I was your source in the wilderness. I fed you. I provided for you in the wilderness. That is still true in the land of plenty. I am still your source. I still provide for you. It was easier to see in the wilderness when the manna fell from the sky. It was a miracle every day. They saw it. They saw supernatural provision. In the land, it might be easier to say, well, this, the wheat, the barley, the overflowing abundance, I worked for this, or this is just the good land. And God is saying, take the lesson from the wilderness with you into the land of plenty, because the same thing is true in both places. I am your source. I provide for you. All good things come from me whether by miracle falling from the sky or whether by the produce of the good land that I created and gave to you. So he gives them this warning with this symmetry of saying, you've come from the place of wilderness and testing into the land of plenty and blessing. But now that you're in the land of blessing, get ready because there's a new kind of testing. And the test in the land of plenty will be this. Will you remember me, says the Lord? Will you remember me that it is I who provided for you in the wilderness? Will you trust in me that I am the one to provide for you now? So when we have some amount of material success, we're no longer paycheck to paycheck. We're no longer desperately uh, scrolling through our Chase account online to see if we'll make it to the end of the month. When we start living comfortable, comfortably, we might say, I've worked hard. I've earned it. Now, the Bible praises hard work and diligence. That's important to know. It's also really important for you to know that nowhere does the Bible say that it is sinful to be wealthy. Did you know that? It's important to know. The Bible never says that it's a sin to be rich or to be wealthy. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says, one, whatever level of wealth you do have, do not even begin to think it comes from you. 
Look again at verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. God is saying, don't even go there. Everything that you have comes from me. That's the first lesson that the Bible wants us to know about our money and our possessions. The second thing, it is not a sin to be wealthy, but it is a sin to be wealthy and to not share, to not be generous. So the Bible doesn't call being rich a sin, but the Bible speaks often and in many places and warns against being wealthy but not sharing what you have. That is a sin and a very dangerous place to be in. And so the greater the wealth, the greater our responsibility to be generous. That is the second thing that the Bible wants us to know. And Lent is a great time to strengthen and stretch the muscle of our generosity. And every time we do so, we punch back against the god of mammon. That's the name of the idol associated with greed and materialism, an idol who has great power in America, the idol of mammon. But every time we give cheerfully with joy, trusting in our God who provides in the wilderness and in the land of plenty, we punch back and we set ourselves free from mammon. Praise God. Now, this is true, this warning, this is true, I should say, in a season of heightened spiritual activity. This is true not just of material success, but it's true of spiritual growth as well. It is an error to think when we start to grow spiritually and find ourselves maturing or we start taking on disciplines and are actually succeeding at them for once, it is an error to think that this comes from us. Self-righteousness is to forget that all our righteousness comes from God. And I, I say it, it's probably even more dangerous than, than greed and materialism. Self-righteousness. Instead, it's what Paul says to the Philippians. Philippians. It is God who works in you both to will, that is to desire, and to work, that is he gives you the strength to do what you desire, for his good pleasure. So any good that is in me, any good that is in me comes from God. Even the desire to do good comes from God. The ability to carry it out comes from God. So then what shall we conclude? What shall we say? We shall say, he is all. He is everything. He has done it. He is doing it. And we simply give him thanks and praise and stay open to him and say, yes, what next, Lord? So then how do we learn the lesson of the wilderness? And how do we heed the warning given to us about the land of plenty? How do we cultivate humility? Well, I can tell you one thing not to do. Don't try to be humble. That's, that never works. It never works to try to be humble because you either fail at it or you actually succeed at it. And then you notice that you've succeeded at it and then you fail at it because you've noticed that you've succeeded at it. <laughs> the way to be humble is not by trying to be humble. The way to be humble is to know God to remember, to remember God and all he has done for you, all he has done for us as his people, our failings, how he has forgiven us every time, our need, how he has supplied our need, every wilderness, how he has led us through and provided. So the way to cultivate humility is to intentionally remember and give thanks. You know, in Lent we do give things up, but hopefully you know that it's not only about giving things up, but also taking things on. There should be disciplines that you're taking on. And if you're at the beginning of Lent still trying to figure out 
what are some of the disciplines that you're going to be giving up or taking on, let me suggest to you one in particular. It's a Lent and discipline of taking on. As Christians, we should always be in our Word, in the Word and in prayer daily. That should just be standard for us. Uh, but let me give to you this Lent a certain way of praying. Encourage you that when you go to the place of prayer, set five minutes to pray nothing but prayers of thanksgiving. Five minutes to pray exclusively prayers of thanks, remembering the wildernesses that God has taken you through, remembering your sins and the failures of the past. He says, remember, Israel, the whole way that God led you. Well, that whole way included many other points of failure and missteps. And, and Moses is saying, remember them. Not to beat yourself up with shame, but to remember the kindness and the mercy of God and to remember how quickly you forget. So we look back on our sins and we remember his mercy and we give thanks for the wildernesses he's led us through. We also remember the times where he provided for us when we were up against the wall and we had no way out and all of a sudden God did miracles for us. Or we remember just the daily provisions, how he sustains us with breath and water and food and shelter and clothes, these things. There's no end to what we can give God thanks for. But I tell you what, set a timer. A youth pastor once told me to do this, and ever since I, I've liked that practice, to get started. Because the first few times you'll do this, it'll be hard to actually make it to five minutes. If you're praying nothing but thanksgiving, you'll, you'll get to like two minutes or three minutes, and you'll just say, I don't know what else to think of. So set a timer and force yourself to get to five minutes. And then after a while, after a week or two, you'll be busting through that five minutes. I guarantee it. And you will also much, much more importantly, you'll be cultivating that heart of humility, that assurance, God has given me everything. He will give me everything I need. I depend on Him for everything. That humility and gratitude will be cultivated. Finally, let me say this. When you're intentionally giving thanks, whether it's the morning or at the night, whether you're doing it out loud or in your journal, you can do it on your commute, when you're doing your five minutes of intentional prayers of thanksgiving, make sure to remember and include the ultimate wilderness that you've been delivered from, the ultimate house of slavery that God has saved you from, the wilderness that we remember and give thanks to God for delivering us from every time we gather at the altar, every time we remember, as Jesus said, remember me, Every time we remember and give thanks at the altar, we're remembering and giving thanks for this, that he rescued us from the house of slavery in the wilderness of sin and death. The knowledge that apart from the blood of Jesus and the gift of his life on the cross, we're lost forever in death, forever in death because of our sin and disobedience. But out of his great love for us, he went into the wilderness to come and get us out of it. He took on our sin. He took on our death so that we might be saved. So in your time of intentional thanksgiving, always include these two things that are most precious to the ears of God. God, thank you for making me. God, thank you for saving me. Oh, you'll be transformed if you pray even those two things every day of your life. God, thank you for making me. God, thank you for saving me and for saving us.
your people. So this Lent, let us remember the Lord our God who brought us out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and who led us through the wilderness, and let us give him thanks and praise. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.